and welcome to the Perfect Gentleman podcast. This is episode 17. I am Zach Falconer-Barfield and alongside me is... James Marwood. Nice to speak to you again, Zach. How are you, my friend? Very good indeed. We're trundling along. It's almost the end of June. I know. It's rapid past. Mm, it's nice, though. I'm, I'm enjoying the, the June, the early summer. Been a busy bee, but um, we're looking forward to a bit, of, a bit of break in July. I've got a couple of weeks of, uh, of dog sitting in July. So Lovely. Yeah, that'd be nice. I'll be speaking to you from the depths of Kent for a couple of weeks. The Garden of England. Lovely. So this week, it's a little short one. We've got our, our little cultural gentleman review section where we uh, get our first opera review. Excellent. Looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And then uh, with our new contributor, Lorella McDonald, which will be lovely. Mm-hmm. I spoke to her earlier in the month uh, when she talked about the language of flowers. Well, we've got her back for a little opera review. Then we're going to talk a little bit about tennis, as it's Wimbledon this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, we have another lady joining us, the perfect lady herself, Miss Leah Morrigan. Always a treat. Who's going to talk about a uh, thorny issue, or should I say a naily issue? <laughs> yes. It says, why men don't pedicure. Mm. Especially after our earlier rant about sandals and flip-flops. So uh, without further ado, let's talk culture. We're welcoming back the fantastic Lorella. Oh, hello. (laughs) Hello, Lorella. Lovely to have you back. Ladies first, what have you reviewed? I have been reviewing uh, Lucia de la Memor by Donizetti, which is an opera based on a Scottish novel by uh, Walter Scott. And uh, it's very sort of gothic and dramatic. Wow. It is not an opera I have seen. Have you seen it, James? I haven't. I know very little about opera, unfortunately, so I'm pleased to learn more. I'm very happy to share. It's, it's my Excellent. passion. So. Oh, fantastic. The opera's based on Sir Walter Scott's book. It's definitely one of those melodramatic Victorian stories which involve a lot of the elements and a lot of uh, sort of craggy creeks and uh, heroines dying in terrible ways and heroes committing suicide and all this sort of thing. So a happy-go-lucky opera then? Yes, yeah, very uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, performance was this did you see or, or did you listen to? I've seen this performance once in Holland Park, you know, the open air. Um, oh, beautiful. Yes, there. That was a long time ago now. And I actually met Brian Sewell there, which is random, but... <laughs> yep. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and I've also been listening to this opera, various recordings. I've seen it uh, on, on DVD versions as well. It's always been an opera that um, I've... I've enjoyed, if that's the right word. <laughs> it just came to me. I, I didn't sort of have any agenda or anything just writing about it. I just thought, what can I write about? I said, oh, did la memoir just literally just sprang into my head as an inspiration. Fantastic. And, yeah, because uh, I thought, well, Donizetti, you know, he wrote um, other operas as well that were quite uplifting and quite happy, if you like, um, in, 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 as far as plotline is concerned. Um, and, and music as well. If you listen to Lucia de Lammermoor's music, it sounds very light and lyric and very um, moving. And it's, it is like that. But the themes are absolutely horrific. This, this young woman, Lucia, who's um, basically stuck between two rival houses in Scotland. Now, Scotland in, the, in that era, when the novel was written, the Victorians loved Scotland because they thought, oh, you know, this swirling romantic place full of craggy creeks. So all of this sort of nature and you know, emotions going this way and that way, it was very much reflected in the, the art of the time and in the operas. She, she's this young heroine who's fallen in love with the wrong guy from the wrong house. 
Enrico is is like her evil brother who says, well, basically, you know, you can't marry Edgardo um, because he's from the wrong house and you're going to marry Arturo, who's this other guy. And so Rich isn't exactly happy about this. In the end, as, as the opera sort of rolls on, there's this very, very famous scene called the mad scene. Now, if you haven't heard the mad scene from Lucha de la Memoria, mm-hmm. I advise you, I suggest, I want you to look it up on YouTube. Joan Sutherland does a very good interpretation, and Maria Callas as well. Very different voices. It's one of the most grueling soprano pieces because it's very long, it's very emotionally draining. She's mad, she's going mad. Mm-hmm. She just comes out onto the stage, she's dressed up in her bridal dress, all white, with um, the lovely lace and everything, except she's just murdered her husband, so it's all splattered with blood. So red on white, uh, you see? Yeah, yeah. So very, very dramatic. And she comes out and she starts to sing about Edgardo and how happy they're going to be together. And she's just murdered her husband. <laughs> you know? wow. So everybody around her, all the cast around her, don't know what to, what to say, what to do. Mm-hmm. And she has this marvelous aria, this um, mad scene is called. The, the things to listen out for is the echo between the flute or the glass harmonicas they used recently in the Met and her voice. Because the relationship that the soprano has to have with the flute player or glass harmonica player is one that is almost like insightful. It's almost like a like sixth sense because mm-hmm. they have to play off each other and uh, he had, they have to be sensitive to that. And I tell you, a really good production of that can really set your skin, you know, goose pimples because it really, really does sort of pull at the heartstrings. And it's, it's so sad as well because she's so innocent and young and, and you know she has this genuine love and then of course Edgardo comes in at that moment you know he sees her there he see, well he comes in actually beforehand when she actually signs the marriage contract and of course you know stupid idiot he gets he gets he, he still says oh you know I don't love you anymore and you know this hot tempered flair and you know she leaves him and makes sort of basically leaves her there and then and then in the final scene when he's realized that actually she's dead and he says, no, no, I actually love her so much. I love her so much. He has these rather dramatic areas. One, of course, he stabs himself to death, wanting to to unite himself with his beloved. Wow. <laughs> yes, yes, that, 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 that sounds fantastic. <laughs> it's a real ride for the emotions. It, it, you know, it, it I, sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, and I thought, well, you know, it's sort of um, a bit me as well, so I, <laughs> I like the mad scene. It's one of my favourite scenes. So. Excellent. <laughs> When I looked this opera up, because I actually didn't know this opera, I uh, realised when I looked it up that the aria that you're talking about, the Mad Scene aria, appears in a science fiction movie. It appears in the Fifth Element, the Luc Besson movie. Really? Okay. It's the the aria that the uh, the alien lady sings towards the end of the movie. Oh, I've got to I've got to see this film again. (laughs) Yeah, so I I I I was looking. You know, one of those weird little facts you kind of pick up. Yeah, no, I love that. I'll I'll definitely look at. So it's the Fifth Element. The Fifth Element. Yes. So I I would I would have a look at that. So who's your favourite interpretation of it? What's what's the most one you remember the most? What would you recommend people listen to first? I would recommend the Joan Sutherland version, but I also like Maria Callas. I, I would always recommend two versions, just to compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you're new to opera, this is quite a, quite a good one to get into because it's not complicated and it's not heavy like a Wagner. Mm-hmm. Wagner is very heavy, moral, very epic, 
fantasy. For Lucha de la Memoria, that's a good one to get into because it's, as I say, it's quite light opera. It's got it's got very good highlights. I mean, you, you will recognize, for example, the sextet that I mentioned as well in the review. Qui me frena in tal momento. Qui me frena in tal momento. That's a good one to start with. If you look at that one up on YouTube, Qui me frena in tal momento, which I mentioned in the review, you'll get a sort of flavor of what the different voices can do as well because the, the male voices are in there as well. It goes through the whole range of tunes. It's, okay. it's really it's really something to listen to. Yeah, really that sounds it. I should be looking this up and, and watching this in the in the very near future. So, James, what have you uh, what have you got for us this week? Well, I, I, I feel a bit lowbrow now. I'll <laughs> the other end. I've talked before about my love of American crime fiction. You have, uh, yes. It's another one in that view, and it's the novel Raylan by Elmore Leonard. The fantastic Elmore Leonard, yes. Sadly, no longer with us. Probably the greatest recent American crime novelist. Raylan is probably familiar to a lot of people from the TV series Justified, which is a lot of fun, sort of shooty action adventure stuff. The novel Raylan, it's the the fourth story that Leonard wrote with this character, the cowboy hat-wearing sharpshooter. It's interesting because it's a a slight reimagining or retconning of the earlier stories, and it's where he folds in the early incarnations of the of the character from the first two novels, Pronto and, and Riding the Rap, and then a short story, Fire in the Hole, all three of which are well worth checking out, and then some of the work that he and the other writers did on the TV series, and kind of rewrites the character into what is probably one of the best. American-style crime novels of recent years. Leonard was the king of that style, and this was him right at the top of his game. It's really good fun. I read it 2014 when it came out. I picked it up the other day when I was going through, through the train station. I had a long journey and just devoured it. It's so good, so much, so much fun. If you like your crime fiction, this is probably one of the, the quintessential styles, and this is probably the best example of it. No, he was a fantastic author. I mean, I've read many 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 of his um his novels and they're just stunning absolutely in his screenplays as well you know and he wrote something like 40 novels and he did screenplays for things like you know high noon part two and things like that and a lot of his stories were adapted into tv and into film get shorty was one of his it's just so much fun what i like about leonard as with so much of this of these sorts of things uh, are his his characters and the dialogue and the situations you get in, you know, it's got that fun, good guy, bad guy, cops and robbers thing, that sort of Saturday afternoon television. But layered over that are these interesting and difficult, complex characters. So Raylan Givens, the the main character from, from the TV series and for this book, he's not a typical sort of square-jawed Dudley Do-Right hero he's a little bit dark and he has confusion and doubt and all of those sorts of things and tries to hide it all somewhat successfully the way that Leonard writes those characters and the way they interact with each other I love it I just lap it up that's my review and my recommendation excellent we love our crime fiction and Elmore Leonard is one of the greatest exponents of of that genre certainly in the in the last of the of the 20 of the 20th century. I mean, I think he was, was a superb writer. And it's interesting you mentioned that he was, he was very prolific. As my favourite author 
of that period as well, which is the the late great Robert B. Parker. Sure. They both wrote prolifically, and they both were big fans of westerns as well. They both wrote western novels. Uh, Three Ten to Yuma. Yes, it was a short story being filmed twice. Fantastic western, both versions of it. I grew up with westerns, watching them with my granddad, and both books and films. It's quite a good grounding for that type of fiction. Are you a, are you a fan of crime fiction, Lorella? It's funny because um, actually this is a new author for me. Oh. <laughs> um, I know. Um, it probably is one of the classics, but um, American crime fiction, um, yeah, but the one that, that I was reading that I, was, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed was um, Raymond Chandler's. Uh, oh. Film. You know, I've fallen in love with him. What, what can I say? <laughs> yes, yeah. But that sort of, you know, the speech and the sort of talking back and the cheekiness and, oh, yeah, and all this sort of thing. It's just fantastic. I don't know whether um, Alma Leonard is a little bit like that, but... Um, the writing styles are a bit different. I mean, no one, no right. one writes quite like Chandler. You know, no one has that sass to it, that cheekiness. I love him. <laughs> yeah. I think I talked about The Big Sleep on an earlier episode. That's one of my all-time favourite novels. But it's interesting, I think, that style of American fiction and the guys who, it was primarily guys who, who wrote it, they switched between short stories, novels and screenplays. You get that sort of cinematic dialogue and that way of setting scenes and the snappy sort of repartee that feels very Hollywood. It's often sometimes called grit lit, especially the kind of southern noir style. I really like it. Guys like Stephen Leather and Seth Anderson Bailey and those kinds of of authors. To, I, I get to read and watch a film at the same time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you love Raymond Chandler, Robert B. Parker, I yes. would highly recommend because he was the guy that the Chandler estate got to write, complete Chandler's last unfinished novel. I shall be looking him up, Zach. Like Elwood Leonard, he wrote 40 novels or something like that. Once you get down the Elwood Leonard, Robert B. Parker rabbit hole, you'll be reading novels, their novels for probably uh, the next three years because they've got so much back catalogue to get through. Well, um, that sort of wraps up our lovely review. Two very interesting and different reviews this week. Thank you once again, Lorella. It's a pleasure having you. And we shall look forward to speaking to you next time. Born in the backshop of a Colombian leather craftsman, matured on the Pan-American highway, perfected on a pub's damp table in Savile Row, Monsieur London is the result of travel. It led its two creators from Anchorage to Oshire on the 19,000-mile-long journey. They ended up in London to settle the project born from a choice to lead a lifestyle with higher standards and expectations. A brand for the 21st century cosmopolitan man. As a result of this approach, the online retail shop MonsieurLondon.com was launched in October 2012. Since then, they have met many pop-up shops in Paris and London and opened with business partners La Gassionnière, a 250 square metres men lifestyle concept store in Paris. Their brand offers elegant accessories made with traditional know-how for a fair price. They make their customers pay for the quality, not for the branding and marketing. Their French, Italian and English workshops fabricate outstanding products, created with their sense of traditional know-how and their passion for style. These accessories reflect the technical excellence of their makers. They offer bespoke options on many of their products, including gloves, bags and belts. Check them out at MissYourLondon.com. Two very different bits of culture. You've got Lorella's highbrow, very cultured opera and my Pulp Fiction. I'm really excited now because I've I'd known very little about opera. It's a gap in my knowledge, so I'm going to be going on YouTube and having a having a look for some of those she recommended. No, that's a good idea. But actually, weirdly, your novel sounded much happier than her opera. 
<laughs> yes, yes. For all it my supposed grit it didn't quite have that blood splattered wedding dress and, and what have you. So yes, killing and committing suicide and all sorts of things. Yes. I suppose opera was the thriller of its day. It was, it was, yeah. I like opera, I, I don't know enough about it, but it's nice to have a, a bit of opera. On, on the show, it gives a bit of a cultural boost. Is it a good idea getting Lorella and class the place up a bit? <laughs> exactly. So yes, it is Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should talk a little bit about tennis. Yes, I played tennis at school, okay. but not since. Yet I still, like most English people, I follow Wimbledon rather than the full game. I think Wimbledon has a uh, has a certain, uh, to use that French phrase, je ne sais quoi, for us English people, that we, we are addicted to it. It is that short spell in the middle of summer where everybody loves tennis and it's all over the news and it's all over the papers and the TV and then it just sort of dies off. And e- even when have got big tournaments happening in the US and France and the Far East, we don't pay as much attention to those, which is probably a bit of a shame. Considering we invented the game, we should... <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> We should pay a little bit more attention to it. <laughs> do you know much about the history of tennis sack? I do, actually, bizarrely. I wrote a couple of pieces about it a few uh, years uh, ago. What we know now as lawn tennis mm-hmm. was originally what is now known as real tennis. So tennis was an indoor game played in a court which was not too dissimilar to a courtyard. Um, mm. And uh, it is a much more complicated game than, yes. than lawn tennis. I've watched a game of it once. I struggled to understand what was happening. It was very exciting, but I was a little lost. Weirdly, I played it at school. One of our teachers was a professional real tennis player. Oh, OK. It was professional amateur in those days, you know, like rugby, yes, rugby was. It was kind of that, that sort of bit where they were professional in the sense that they played, but they only played outside their jobs, unlike most sportsmen now. Uh, he took me to my first first real tennis game mm-hmm. where well, he took the school actually I just thought it was a fascinating game it's, uh, there's a number of courts in the UK and they have a court in Queen's Club I saw him play there and then I played a couple of games with him and it was very fascinating it's very complex it's a very difficult mm-hmm. game hence why I think lawn tennis was born out of it because te- te- real tennis was far too complicated for the masses to play I remember looking at the court and you, know, and you have was it receiving court and pass court and then Dozens of lines and things. It's like, imagine an American football gridiron made a bit more complicated and then put in an indoor tennis rack where the walls also mean certain things and then play a very fast game of tennis on it. I was more than a little lost. Real tennis was invented in the 15th century, played by Henry VIII as a court in the Roehampton Court as well. It has the longest run of world champions of any sport. I think it was 1760. There's been a world oh, champion okay. of real tennis. And as real tennis declined, lawn tennis came about. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, the 18th century, real tennis declined, and lawn tennis, because it was a much less difficult game, and it could be played outdoors, and it was much more invigorating, came to prominence late 19th century, really. Actually, one fact I do know about that is that the, the world's first tennis club was in Leamington Spa. It is. Yes. In, uh, I think it was 1872. My word. Testing my my. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always been a gentleman's game. I always think of it like it's it's cricket and golf and 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 tennis. The, the summer, sum, I mean, golf is a year-round sport, but they, they're considered the summer sports. Yeah, it's always been that sort of bit about convivialness, about real tennis being played by kings and aristocracy, and it's original. But it's always been that game of gentlemanly conduct, and yeah. spectators, even to this day, are expected to behave yes. in a manner that's respectful to the players. There's no 
booing or jeering or you're not allowed to behave like like heathens <laughs> it's not like going to the football or the rugby where they're cheering you on yeah exactly it's similar to snooker which is another sport i like to watch where the the umpire the referee will say to everyone pipe down and we're not going to play well exactly and i think it's, it's it's really interesting it's one of the only sports i think they actually have a a sportsmanship award oh, okay so they actually have an award for sportsmanship now it's called the stefan edberg award mm-hmm for sportsmanship because he won it so many times sure. and now it's uh, it's been won pretty much almost every year I think by Roger Federer since yes. he started playing he's kind of um, been the, the exponent of sportsmanship for the sport we remember bad sportsmanship of it like John McEnroe mm-hmm. of course his, his, yep. you cannot be serious outburst it's tantrums but we remember that because it's so contrary to the sport that makes sense I mean one of the things that you quite often see in social media on the and finally sections of newspapers and things are examples of tennis players being very sweet to ball boys or the kids who help out the, at the games and things. There was one I saw, which actually was was Federer recently. There was a, a young chap sort of standing, holding the umbrella over him while they took a break and he's cleared his bag off the seat next to him so the chap could sit down and then they shared his bottle of water with him and had a chat. And it was just a very gentlemanly and, and respectful thing to do. Um, and of course made this young guy's day because he probably made up that he gets to stand and hold the umbrella for Roger Federer, but then to get to sit next to him and, and chat with him is even something else. Singles are not so friendly, but doubles are a great friendly sport to play with people. You don't have to be great at it. If you want to play it as a social game, I mean, it's not one of those sports where you have to be phenomenally good. Sure, sure. Golf, I always think, is you have to have a good base standard to make yourself get around a course. Whereas tennis, if you can hit the ball over the net... You're going well. In golf, if you're struggling, you're holding up people behind you or the guys you're with are having to wait for you. In tennis, you know, as long as you can get that a reasonable speed rally going, it's fine. The fun's in the play rather than necessarily in the winning. Yeah, I think so. And my ideal bit of Wimbledon is actually not the, uh, yes, it's really interesting, the singles game, but I always love doubles. Mm -hmm. And I love the last week where they have the older players. Yes. And their characters and their antics and their fun that they have while they play just makes my, my whole Wimbledon experience for me it is great to see I mean one of the things that I like a lot about about watching tennis and enjoying it is that you have the men's and the women's singles mm. it's great that unlike some other sports that I enjoy like like say football or boxing where the, the women can be big stars which is great because if they're such good players and getting to see them on TV is fantastic but also that you have the mixed game which is fun there's not many team sports that are mixed no there aren't I think tennis is a great sport and we should actually probably play it more maybe maybe James you and I should go up and uh and play a game. Play a game, yeah. Yeah, I'll try my best to keep up. But yes, I'd, I'd be glad to. I haven't played in years either. I think it's a fun thing to do and maybe we should play regularly. Maybe that should be our, our sport. We could do tennis and then go for a cigar afterwards. I think this is a very gentlemanly idea. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> we hope you enjoy Wimbledon and I hope you uh, get to play a bit more tennis this year. Why not pick up a racket and have some fun? Our wonderful partners, the Cravat Club, provide luxury silk cravats, scarves and pocket squares. Designed and handcrafted in England. So compliment your style with a touch of sartorial elegance with these 100% silk cravats, scarves and pocket squares, which are an ideal addition to evening or day wear for a sharp and refined look for the distinguished gentleman. Head on over to their website, www.cravat-club.com to grab yours now next section is the perfect lady and uh, do you think the the men of tennis pedicure 
I don't know. They're generally quite well turned out chaps. I would expect they do. Yeah, I'd expect they do too. And especially taking care of your feet and playing when you're on them all the time needs to be done. Yes, absolutely. Well, let's ask Leah. Leah, tell us about why men don't pedicure. Hello, gents. So we're in spring and moving into summer and weather is getting warmer. But just because it's warm out, it doesn't mean that we have the license to slack off on bathing and presentation. And this includes your feet. So like you would normally have clean hands and a clean face, during the summertime when you're not wearing a business shoe and your feet are exposed, why wouldn't you clean them? This is very important. If we think of a gentleman's pride in his appearance, why would you forget the state of your feet? It's you're all one package. They're part of your, of your image and your presentation just as much as anything else is. And this is all about self-respect and respecting other people who may just be put off by your scruffy, dirty feet. I, I know that I would because that's a reflection of you, ultimately. So be mindful of the state of your feet. Give them a good scrub in the morning and keep your nails clean, then Bob's your uncle. But besides the state of your feet, also be mindful of your socks and wear appropriate socks with your, with your choice of shoe during the summer. If you're wearing a flip-flop or a sandal, this is the case where you will not wear a sock, or please don't wear socks. I don't know where, why people started wearing socks with sandals, but that was never meant to be. Now, if you're wearing a loafer or a lighter weight shoe with shorts or capri-length trousers or something like that, wear short invisible socks. We don't need to see your socks because we can see your leg. Please don't wear dress socks if your leg is exposed. It just looks awkward. It's just not a good look. So that's no socks with sandals. Keep your dress socks in the drawer from when you're wearing suits or long pants. And look stylish from your head to your toes this summer. And feel good that you attended to all of the details of your presentation. Thank you, Leah. Uh, the perfect lady, as always, with some lovely information. Take care of your feet, men. Take care of your feet. James, it's the end of this podcast, and it's also the end of another month. I know, it has flown over, and people are still listening, which is very kind of them. And we like them doing so. If you have any comments, uh, you have any suggestions, you want us to talk about something, you want us to review something, you want us to talk about anything in particular, you have an idea for a special podcast, maybe, we're always happy to hear from you. Please drop us an email at enquiries at theperfectgentleman.tv or you can contact us on any of our social media channels at the P Gentlemen, and that's on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and even Snapchat. <laughs> We're getting modern and down with the kid. Indeed. Um, uh, but yes, please, we'd love to hear from you. We like hearing your feedback. We like hearing from you and your ideas and your suggestions. So um, thank you very much, James. Thank you, Zach. And um, I shall speak to you soon. Take care, my friend. You too. This podcast is brought to you by the Perfect Gentleman Group Limited and was edited by Andy Nichol at the Pistachio Palace.